Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you that the notes are actually available. You can download them from the same web page that hosts this message on our church website. So if you are one who benefits from having the, uh, the blanks and the notes in front of you, you can pause right now and you can print off um, one or two of those for yourself and your family. If not, we're going to press on through as we continue now our second Lord's Day, not gathering together, but gathering separately in our own homes. Once again, I am not speaking from the assembly of the firstborn, but from my shed. And so we will continue in our study of Ephesians, trusting that even as the world around us is changed and the way we are doing things is changed, God's word is not changed. God's grace is dependable. And God will bless the study of his word. He will give the increase, which we trust that. So I'd like to begin by reading um, the section that we're in now, our second part of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, part 2, Christ's triumphant gifts. I'd like to begin by reading the entire section. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord God, I pray now that you would bless your word in our hearts, that you would give the growth and the increase, that you would sanctify your people even as we are separate, that you would purify your bride by the washing of the water with the word. And I pray now that you would help us to understand that the grace that you have given to us, the the, the crucial role that each one of us is to play in the unity and the maturity of your body. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. 
So we are going to primarily look at verses 7 through 10 this morning. Um, verses 1 through 16 comprise a unit, we saw that last week, um, headed by the, the title, Walking in a Worthy Manner, in verse 1. And so we saw that in the first six verses, the way that we can walk in a fitting or appropriate or corresponding way to the great privilege and blessing of our call is to walk in unity, to maintain the oneness of the Spirit. That's literally what Paul says, eager in verse 3, to maintain the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then after telling us the attitudes that bring unity, the actions that bring unity, and the goal of unity, we, we are given the theological truth that undergirds that unity. We must be unified because there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And then linking, he links that first six verse section on unity to the second section on maturity and giftedness by explaining that the one God and Father of all is over all and through all and in all. That's going to be part of our linking thought, the spiritual gifts. This God and Father is over all, but he's also in us and working through us. And that became the basis by which we might hope to accomplish the work that we've been called to do in maintaining the unity of the Spirit through our humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. So this week, we're going to see Christ's triumphant gifts. Christ has gifted each and every one of us in his body with gifts of grace to enable us to serve and build his body. And so we're going to look at this over three weeks from here, from verse 7 all the way through verse 16. It's going to take us three weeks to get through there because this is rich, rich, practical material for the church, for the body of Christ. Uh, there are many times you'll see conferences or books about church growth. And, and usually what these conferences or seminars or books are doing are, are taking... Um, Worldly, and I don't say worldly as if it's wicked, but I just mean the wisdom of the world, what we get from the business world, what we get from sociology, worldly wisdom to build a crowd, to draw people in, find out, canvas what your community wants and, and, and give them the things that they would like. And, and there's, there's a certain amount of um, practicality that can work with that. But biblical church growth has nothing to do with that. Biblical church growth is seen... If you look over to verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is the church growth we want. That's the church growth God is concerned with. Growth in maturity, growth in unity, growth in stability, growth in Christ-likeness. And so the first way that we can move towards this, we saw last week, is through maintaining unity. 
We're not going to grow up into Christ and his image. and His body is not going to be directed by the head as, as it ought to be if we're in disunity with, with, with bickering and conflict between us. But this, the second piece we need is we need to be growing in our own maturity and doctrinal stability. And so that's what we're looking at now in the, this next section from verse 7 all the way through 16 is the growth in maturity. And together, our walking in unity, our walking in maturity is, is how we as a body walk in a worthy manner. So in one sense, this is an umbrella category for all of our conduct as Christians. And again, this reemphasizes why it is so essential that we're part of a body. Why it's so essential that even as we're separated right now through a time of social distancing, we, we endeavor eagerly, zealously to maintain as we can our lines of communication, our relationships, because we cannot do this on our own. These great, lofty, high things that we are called to require community require each other. We cannot do them alone in a shed. We can talk about them in a shed, but I cannot do them here. Neither can you. So we're going to look at this in three parts. In verse 7, we're going to begin looking at the gifts of grace themselves. The gifts of grace themselves. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So I want us to see, ooh, that was, that was unpleasant. I apologize for that. I want us to see five things here in verse 7. And this is just such a rich section of scripture. First, point A, unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. What do I mean? We've so emphasized in the last six verses our unity, the oneness that we have. Literally, that's how Paul links through this entire um, first seven verses, starting in verse three, eager to maintain the unity, literally the oneness of the spirit. And he undergirds the need for that oneness in the body with the, with the doctrinal oneness as we all have the same spirit. We all have the same hope. We all have one Lord, one faith. And you might be tempted to think then because of this unity, because of this similarity, Christians then are all just going to be clones of each other, interchangeable indistinguishable. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are called to a unity, but not to uniformity. And he is still using a wordplay here with the word one. Notice that in verse seven, but we start off with a contrast now. Grace was given to each one of us. And just as that one shows up in the English, it shows up in the Greek as well. So what began with the oneness of the spirit that we're to maintain because of the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. Now comes but to each one. And now we're looking at diversity in unity. Each one of us distinctly, individually, is gifted with grace. And so we go from focusing on the unity to now diversity in unity. So our unity, which is crucial, which is worth striving and working for, does not mean we are uniform. Each one of us is gifted with grace. That's the first point. Each one of us is gifted with grace. And, and this is clear throughout the rest of this epistle. Even in chapter 5, when he begins to go through his household code, 
There's different instructions for wives and for husbands and for parents and for children and for slaves and for masters. Even as we're unified in the faith with a common Lord and a common hope and a common call and a common baptism, there is distinction and diversity among us. We've already even seen that back in chapter 2, that even as he speaks to the Gentiles and says, we have been made one new man in Christ, he's able even there, emphatically insisting, we are new, we are one, but we are one made new together, we can still be called, remember therefore at that time, you Gentiles in the flesh. And so of course we're still men, we're still women. We're, we're still individuals in that sense. And Christ's gifts of grace are individual here. Each one of us. To each one of us, he says, was given grace. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the first point is, even as we strive for unity, unity does not mean uniformity. I've said this before, but the... The uh, diversity of the body of Christ is its glory and its strength. I know I'm borrowing from metaphors and other passages, but in 1 Corinthians 12, a body is not going to function well if it's all eyes or all fingers or all toes or all noses. Our, our body's diversity is its strength. And that same truism is played out here because even as we are one and we're striving to be one and we're being built together into a holy temple, each one of us has a different measured gift of grace. Each one of us. Point B, these gifts then uh, are to be understood as undeserved. Undeserved. Why? They're grace. And, and if grace is anything, it is undeserved. Grace can never be merited. If, if God has gifted you with a gift of grace, if you're a Christian... That gift was just as much undeserved as your salvation was undeserved, as your calling was undeserved. And Paul has been speaking about God's grace at length in this epistle, hasn't he? He's been speaking about grace for a long time. Go back to chapter 2. Back to chapter 2 where he speaks of our salvation, where we are made alive, resurrected, where we were raised with Christ, where we were seated with Christ. And he says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not a result of something we did. It's not a result of our work. You didn't work really hard and then get a really great gift. You could boast then. The nature of grace is it removes boasting. Whatever gifts you have that God has given to you, and you have a gift of grace if you're a Christian, it's not a statement of your merit, your hard work. It's grace. And of its nature, grace is undeserved. Our God lavishes grace on us lavishes it. Go back to chapter 1, uh, to the opening benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Apparently, part of every spiritual blessing would include these gifts of grace. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, listen to this, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And he goes on to speak about all the different graces we have. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Our forgiveness, grace. Our call and adoption, grace. Our being made alive, grace. And now, even as we're saved, the grace doesn't stop. It keeps on coming. Christ has gifted us gifts of grace. That's just such good news. Because last week we saw that the task at hand, if we understand it rightly, is impossible according to the flesh. And then we ended last week by noting that there's hope in, in referencing God the Father as being in all and through all, that here perhaps might be the, the, where, the wherewithal with which we could undertake this work. And now we learn that's exactly right. Not only is God in us and working through us, but, but Christ has gifted us grace, the task at hand. So the gifts are undeserved. Okay, what, what are the purposes of these gifts? Now, this is a shorter discussion on gifts. In other passages of, of Paul's letters, he speaks more at length. He doesn't go into a lot of description of what the gifts are. He's mainly speaking to the fact that there is a gift of grace. And you and I, if we're Christians, have a gift of grace. Individually. And it's, it's got a purpose and a goal. And this is where a lot of confusion can happen, especially in charismatic circles. The gifts have one function and one function only, as far as I can tell, for the body life. They are this. The gifts are given to build Christ's body. The gifts are given to build Christ's body. So here, here's the picture I want you to see. He announces the giving of grace gifts in verse 7. And then he's going to give an Old Testament textual um, justification for this, explanation of this. He's going to talk about it. And then we're going to see not just does every Christian get given a gift, but he's actually going to give gifted people to the body. So if you see that in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. But he's not giving these gifted people to the body to do the work of the ministry. Rather, they're to be understood as equippers, trainers, gave them, look at verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the giftedness is at two levels. First, each and every individual Christian is gifted a gift of grace. And then the Lord on top of that gives to the body gifted trainers, equippers, gift developers, if you will, to enable the saints who've been gifted to utilize their gifts, to do the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry is to mature the body, keep going, look at verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, now there's that individualism, there's that diversity, not all joints are the same. The whole body's working together. There's the unity. But the diversity and individuality is here 
the whole body joined together by every joint, not held together by the five main people, not held together by the pastors, the elders, the deacons. No, no, it's, it's held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the end game. The end game of all of this giftedness, giving gifts to each and every Christian, gifting gifted men to the body, all of that is with an aim, with a goal towards the growing maturity of the body of Christ. That, that's why we have gifts. And again, this is why we need to be part of a body. God did not give you or me a spiritual gift, a gift of grace, to do anything particularly good for you or me, individually. All the gifts are given for the corporate edification and building up of the body. And all the gifts are essential. Every joint needs to be doing its job. This is another reason why it's so important for all of us to wrap our heads around this. That this isn't going to work if only 60% of us are doing this. Paul's emphatic. Each and every joint with which it is equipped, when each heart is working properly. So what I'm trying to do even right now is as an equipper, exhort and equip the body to first understand and then to embrace with your will the reality that God has gifted you and called you to serve the maturing of the body, the building up of the body, and that that's done primarily through speaking the truth in love. But we'll, we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But this is such an important passage for our understanding of why we gather as a body, why we unite together as a body, why we need each other, what work the Lord has for us here on earth while he tarries. And the great work to which we are called to is the building up of the body of Christ, the maturing of the body of Christ, the stabilizing of the body of Christ, so that the body would reflect and be properly directed by its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, point C, the gifts are given to build Christ's body. So unity does not mean uniformity. Whatever gifts that are given, they're not by desert, they're not by merit. They're given to build Christ's body. Point D, the gifts are not given for our glory, but for his. Gifts are not given for our glory but for his. Now here I'm just borrowing on what he's already said about grace. What we learned when we studied through chapter 1, 2, and 3 is that God, here's Paul's language, has lavished richly upon us his grace. So we get the benefit, but why? That his grace might be praised. Turn, turn back to chapter 1, verse 6. Well, you got to go back to verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So God intends to, and is in fact, richly blessing us day after day with grace. He intends, we get the blessing, we get the benefit, we get, we get all the good things, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, but he gets the glory. And that's important with giftedness because we can be tempted take the glory for ourselves. This is one of the reasons why I've already emphasized in this message that the gifts are not given by desert. Some gifts draw more attention. Um, for, for instance, 
Uh, Sunday after Sunday, I'm up front speaking. People are stopping what they're doing and hopefully they're listening. And so there's a certain amount of attention that I draw in my use of my gifts that others may not receive in their equally important, equally necessary gifts. People gifted in, in, in mercy, in ministering to the saints, in, in, in the myriad of other gifts. And the danger would be to think that I have whatever gifts I have because I'm some better person or I've done some better thing I haven't. It's not deserving. The other danger would be to give me or others who are serving in, in ways that are more obvious, that draw more attention to themselves, more glory. That's to rob God of his glory. Now, Paul does make it clear elsewhere that there is a way that we can honor the workmen. We can honor the workmen for their faithfulness in their work. And you can go read 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 there, where Paul speaks about himself and Apollos. And he says, look, we're, we're just, we, we, I plant Apollos waters, God makes it grow. Now, the workman will receive his, his reward, and it's important for him to be found faithful. Um, and so you can thank the elders if you think they're being faithful. If you see them being faithful, you can encourage them. I'm thankful for your faithfulness. Like that, That's fitting and biblical. But God gets the glory for the gifts. God gets the glory for the gifts and the grace and the growth. We need, we need to never mistake that. So the gifts are not due to desert. The gifts have one purpose, that are to build and mature the body. And, and we're not to give the glory to man, but to God. Because again, one of the reasons why Paul likes to, the way he... The way he thanks people is he thanks God for them in their hearing. Remember that? I thank God for all of you. That's the type of thing we do when we understand that ultimately the grace comes from God and it's to bring about praise to him. So to each one of us then, just to sort of recap where we've come, um, has been given a gift of grace. That gift is not deserved because it's grace. That gift is given to build up Christ's body. The gifts are given not that we might receive glory and honor, but that he would. And finally, pointy, the gifts are given according to Christ's choice. You see that in the last little phrase there um, in verse 7. According to the measure of Christ's gift. And literally, that means it's the measurement of the gift. Each of us received a gift according to the size, the parameters, or the measurement of what Christ gave. Literally, the Greek word here is metron, which you get metric from. The gifts differ in size. The gifts differ in function, what they do. In other epistles, Paul can speak of, of speaking gifts and serving gifts. and He doesn't go into that here. He wants us simply to understand the reality we have a gift. And these gifts are individually apportioned and measured out. I want you to notice another thing. We don't request the gifts. We don't sign up for the gifts. We don't put our order in for the gifts. Sometimes you can read books or Christians can act as though you can get certain gifts if you pray or do certain things. Well, here, as in many other passages, Paul makes it clear, no. The gifts are apportioned out. They're measured out. They're tailored, custom-fit according to Christ's will, according to his measurement. Our job is not to pray for and to beg for and plead for the certain gifts we want and then grumble when we don't get the gifts we want. That, that was what was going on in, in 
1 Corinthians. There were factions. The tongues speakers were saying, we've got the really exciting gifts. And the prophecy speakers were saying, no, 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 our gifts are the important ones. And, you know, that is not promoting unity. That is not eager to maintain the, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And it's missing the whole point. God apportions the gifts. They're measured out by him. So in, in summary of this first point, whereas Paul doesn't go specifically into the types of gifts there are, and, and I will pause and make one more point. It's not here in this text, but it is in others. Um, I think it's wrong to think of spiritual gifts as if they're uniform. See, none of the lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament are exactly alike. There's a lot of overlap. But what we get the impression is not that there's 12 gifts and each of us will have one. But that Paul is, is speaking of groupings, and Peter as well, speaking in groupings. But you can talk about gifts of encouragement, gifts of teaching. And, and there's no reason to think that these gifts are all exactly the same, even of the same type. My gift of teaching is not the same as Pastor Daniel's gift of teaching. Um, and so... The God who can make individual snowflakes where no two are alike. The God who can make our fingerprints and our DNA that's totally unique. There's no reason to think that each of our giftedness is not perfectly and individually measured out as well. In fact, that's even implied here when he speaks of Christ's measurement, the measurement of Christ. It's been measured out. It's not as though there's, you know, just stand, okay, give him that gift. We've got 400,000 more encouragement gifts to hand out. No, they're measured, they're tailored out, they're individually given. And that, that's wonderful because it means that your gift is perfect for you and God's purpose for you. God has had you in mind, measured out a gift of grace for you to serve and building up his body. And it's unique to you. It's tailored for you. And our job is not to complain about the gift we wanted instead of the gift we got, but to embrace that, to pray that God might show us how we might serve, how we can use our giftedness, um, and, and then, then seek out those people that Christ has given the body. We, we see them in verse 11, to help train and equip. The implication being just because you've been given a gift doesn't mean everyone knows how to use their gifts to their full potential that there's still a need for training and coordination in the body so that these individually gifted actors would function as a body in unison, ligaments and muscles all working together. I mean, just, just think of how much coordination takes place when you walk. How many ligaments, muscles, nerves, everything working in, in harmony and symmetry as the head directs the various limbs of the body. Even your arms moving to give you balance. That's the picture Paul has here. And it takes every part doing its part. And so he's gifted each and every Christian with a gift of grace. And then he's given training, coordinating, equipping gifted people to the body. We'll see that next week in verse 11. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So that's, that's the picture. So that's, that's the glorious reality, which we'll return to in the next two weeks. The rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at Paul's 
looking at the Old Testament, we're now going to move to point two, the scriptural basis for Christ's gifts. Before Paul goes on to speak with how this all works, he wants to show us where these gifts come from. How is it Christ can give gifts? Where, where did he receive these gifts? What, and what we're going to see is they come right out of the cross. They come right out of the incarnation on the cross. They're spoken of in the Old Testament. And so we're going to see that the triumphant Christ gives gifts. In Christ's triumph over sin and death and the powers of the world, in that triumph and in his exaltation, he gives out gifts to his people. These are victory gifts. So let's, let's look now at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this is a very difficult passage. Please turn, keep your finger here, but turn to Psalm 68, verse 18, which it appears Paul is quoting as we look at the scriptural basis for Christ's gifts. Psalm 68 and verse 18. So I'm going to read to you Psalm 68, 18, and then I'm going to read for you again Ephesians 4, 7. And see if you can spot what's funny. Okay, so here is Psalm 68, 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts from men. Psalm 68, 18. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Did you spot the difference? You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts from men. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> your first blank here. Paul's wording differs significantly. Paul's wording differs significantly. Now, sometimes when the apostles cite the Old Testament, there'll be a word or two different, and we think, okay, perhaps they were using a different Hebrew manuscript or a Greek translation. And so there's even some alterations here that are less significant. Um, the first thing you might notice is that Psalm 68 is using second-person pronouns. You, he's speaking to God. David, who wrote Psalm 68, is speaking to God, and he says to God, you ascended on high. Well, Paul has put it in the third person, he. Okay, that, that's not as significant as a change. It's a significant change, but there's, there's no fundamental change of meaning like we get next. Because Psalm 68, 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from men. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4, 8? When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So Paul has changed, for some reason, receive to give. That's an antonym. That is a word that means exactly the opposite of another word, like hot and cold, big and small. Receive, give. They're opposites. That is a large, significant change. And we've got to grapple with that. We can't just smooth over that because we need to see and believe. It needs to hold true that Paul is not playing fast and loose with the Bible. We, we take our time going through God's word. We're, we're taking our time going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians precisely because we think the best 
most faithful way to study God's word is slowly taking it seriously, treating the grammar and the words seriously. We remember Jesus saying, not one jot or tittle will fall away from the law until all is accomplished. We've seen Jesus in Luke reason tightly from the grammar of the text, making an entire argument to silence the Sadducees on the tense of the verb to be, because in Exodus, God speaking to Moses from the burning bush says, I am, not I was, the God of Abraham. And Jesus builds an entire doctrine of the resurrection off of the tense of a verb. So we have to explain what Paul is doing here. Okay, so I'm going to try to work through this. I, I think I've got an explanation that makes sense, but I don't want to pretend this isn't a difficulty. And my goodness, there's a lot of pages of writing of people trying to attempt to explain what's going on here. I'm, I'm not going to go through all the various options. I'm going to cover two that I think account for fairly well. The first, point B, is Paul may not be directly quoting the text. Paul may not be directly quoting the text. Why do I say that? Well, Paul has various ways of introducing citations. And this one here, that he says, therefore, it says, occurs one other time in Ephesians, where it does not appear to be directly setting up a citation, a direct quote of the Old Testament. Turn to chapter 5, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, Paul is not there citing any one passage of the Bible. There's no verse that I can find in the Old Testament that says anything like, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What seems to be happening in, in Ephesians 5 is that the early church, or Paul, somebody, has stitched together a pastiche of Old Testament quotations and then put in Christian theology into them. So as best as I can tell, Ephesians 5.14 is a pastiche of Isaiah 51 and Isaiah 60, possibly Malachi 2, thrown together. So Isaiah 51 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now you put those two concepts together, and given the New Testament understanding that the Christ of God is the Lord himself, and Paul, or the early church, possibly even a hymn of the early church, can say, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's, it's coming from the Bible, but it's been slightly altered. We do this with our hymns. I mean, how many of the songs we sing on Sunday morning come straight out of Scripture, but, but we've twisted a word, or twisted is probably not the right word, we have altered a word to fit our style, or we've taken and, and put Christ into the context of the Psalms, right? Even the song, A Broken Spirit and a Contrite Heart You Will Not Despise, that comes right out of Psalm 51, but it's not word for word the same. So one of the possibilities here is Paul may well be citing not directly Psalm 68.18, but rather an appropriation of Psalm 68.18 by the early church, known to the Ephesians, known to Paul, coming right out of Scripture. But their understanding now of Psalm 68.18 is informed by this notion of giving, which, which brings me to the next point. If you'll turn to Psalm 68, we need to turn there to, to make some sense of this. So, so the first thought is by very the way Paul introduces the quote, 
he, he may not be signaling, hey, I'm about to quote the Bible. Because when he uses that same introductory formula, therefore it says in chapter 5, he's not doing that at all. Uh, it would be the equivalent of me saying, you know, just like we sing, it is well with my soul. I, I could do that in a message. Or I could say, just like the song we sing, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Someone listening to me might think, oh, he's quoting Psalm 51. Well, actually, I'm quoting the song that he based off of Psalm 51. It's not exactly the same thing. So that could be going on here. And Paul says, therefore, it says. And, and it might be clear to his readers, Paul's not directly quoting scripture. He's quoting an early Christian song or psalm. But I think we can go even a little further with Psalm 68. So Psalm 68 is a written by David. And as best we can tell, it's written at the occasion of the conquest of the Jebusite stronghold of Salem, which David then makes the capital for Israel, Jerusalem. Um, Yahweh is our peace. So Salem is peace, the city of peace. If you remember, Melchizedek was, was a priest king of this city. Well, the Jebusites in David's day ruled it, and David conquers it uh, and makes it the capital. And of course, in Jerusalem is Mount Zion. And so I'll quote um, from John MacArthur on this psalm. He says, Psalm 68 is a victory hymn composed by David to celebrate God's conquest of the Jebusite city and the triumphant ascent of God represented by the Ark of the Covenant up Mount Zion. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 6 and 7 and 1 Chronicles 13. So read with me. We'll go back to verse 15. Um, Psalm 68, 15 through 18. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount of God has desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. That's how we know what we're talking about here is Zion. And then it says, The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Which I think he's saying, the God who appeared at Sinai, that powerful, earth-shaking, terrifying power that the people of Israel said to Moses, no, no, you go talk to him, else we die. That God is now moved to a different mount, to Mount, si to mount Zion, um, with his localized presence of the ark. And then it says in verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts from men, even among the rebellious, the Lord may dwell there. So Psalm 68, in this passage that um, Paul is citing, is David celebrating God taking up residence, making Mount Zion his home. Of course, later the temple will be built there. And of course, later Ezekiel's temple, even from our time point, will, will be built there. So this is about the Lord God coming in conquest, the Jebusites most recently have been conquered, but prior to that, the land of Canaan itself has been conquered. God is a triumphant king taking up residence in Mount Zion. So the uh, point C, Psalm 68, 18 celebrates God's ascension up Mount Zion. Now here's where I think we can make some more sense on Paul's citation and how the wording has changed. If the early church 
has been meditating on this passage, one of the things you note, point D here, is that God, the Lord God, often gives what he receives. The Lord God often gives what he receives. So the picture of a conquering king coming in the spoils of war with gifts and captives in his train, then turning and giving those gifts to his own people is not that strange of a concept. In fact, this was so understood in the early church as to not even be controversial. I'll read to you uh, John Chrysostom. Saw no real difficulty here. Hence his oft-quoted comment, the one word is the same as the other. To receive is to take for the purpose of giving to another. So, so they're thinking, well, of course, the conquering king, God, Lord, Yahweh, when he receives spoils, gives them to his people. Let me give you some examples of this. In um, Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 11, you read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of goods that you did not fill, cisterns you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and then you eat and are full. What, what's he saying? The conquest of Canaan will be so swift, so absolute, that the cities will not be destroyed, the vineyards will not be torn down, the wells and cisterns will not be filled, the very spoils of war that the Lord God wins in the conquest of Canaan, he gives to his people. They dwell there. They live in those cities. They drink from those cisterns. He gives them the gifts that he himself received. But even more clearly, if you turn in Numbers chapter 8, and I think this is the, probably the tightest connection with what comes next in verse 11. Remember, in verse 11, we go from every individual receiving a gift of grace, verse 11 of uh, Ephesians 4, to him actually giving gifted people. He's, he's not giving gifts anymore. He's actually giving apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. He's giving people to the church in addition to giving gifts to each member of the church. Well, there's example and precedent of God doing exactly this for Israel. In Numbers, look at, we'll look at verse chapter 8 first, we see God take the Levites. He takes the priesthood. And in verse 6 of chapter 8 of Numbers 8, take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Verse 14, thus you shall separate the Levite from among the people of Israel and the Levite shall be mine. Then in Numbers chapter 18, verse 6, it all comes together. Behold, I have taken your brothers from the Levites from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do service of the tent of meeting. So there we have the Lord taking to give. And so I think what's going on is Paul, with his spirit-inspired insight, the early church meditating on this, understands that, of course, when God sets up residence, when he exalts himself in triumph over his foes, of course, the very act of taking gifts is to distribute them to his people, to his citizens, to his household. And in that context, then, I think Paul's citation of Psalm 68 makes perfect sense. The understanding is that, of course, when the Lord God triumphs over his foes, when the Lord God is exalted, 
and he receives gifts. The very purpose of receiving those gifts is that he might bestow them upon his people. Okay? So, Paul's scriptural basis for Christ's gifts. Point D, the Lord often gives what he receives. So with that understanding, and I know that was a long aside, but it's important. We, 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 we have to understand how the apostle is using the Old Testament if we're going to check and make sure the way we're using it is consistent and right as well. So um, now Paul is going to ruminate upon that quotation. We're going to look at the descent and the ascent of Christ. The descent and the ascent of Christ. So he gives the, the quotation in verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he's going to talk about that quote in verse 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He had ascended as the one who ascended far above all things that he might fill all things. So, quickly. Um, first point. Christ's ascension presupposes his descent. Right? Fair enough. So if someone rises up to a high position, that only works if they were at a lower position. And that's the first inference Paul makes. We've already talked about Christ's ascension in Ephesians. So in some senses, I think Paul's building upon what he's already said. Turn back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Where he, uh, in verse 20, chapter 120, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put him over all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that's, that's our connection of thought. Notice the end of verse 10, that he might fill all things. So Paul has already spoken of Christ's ascension and glorification and enthronement. And he's linked our ascension with that in chapter 2, remember? He, verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So Paul's already spoken of that rising up, that upward trajectory, that glorification, the ascension. Now he's pausing to consider, yes, but that only works if there was prior to that a descent. Now, in one sense, the Lord Jesus Christ has always had glory. He doesn't grow in glory from eternity past to present. But there is a very real sense in which Christ descended or humbled himself. Now, there's some discussion about what is meant by that phrase. The second point, um, he, he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Now, some have taken that to mean hell. I, I don't think so. I, I think something more straightforward and, and obvious is meant by this. But some have taken descending into the lower regions as to be a Hebrewistic way of speaking um, the realm of the dead uh, or, or hell and then connecting that with other passages. Um, the, the Apostles' uh, Creed references that. Um, I, I think that's off. I think it's missing the point. Simply, I think it's Christ coming to earth. He descended into the lower regions, namely, that's the way the ESV reads it, this apposition, namely the earth. What are the lower regions he descended to? The earth. 
in which case what we're talking about here is Christ's descension descended in his incarnation and death. Christ descended in his incarnation and in his death. Christ was in heaven receiving perfect glory, perfect honor, perfect joyful fellowship with his Father. And he set it aside and he veiled his glory and he humbled himself. And for the first time in his being experienced pain and sorrow and suffering and he came and he lived among us and he was not glorified and praised and lauded and honored by many he descended or to quote um, Paul's wonderfully poetic way of saying this in Ephesians you, you, you know this passage Ephesians chapter 2 have this, I mean, sorry, Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Christ's downward trajectory is the descent from heaven to the womb of a peasant girl in Israel, to the lowly birth, not in a palace, but in a stall, living among us, being despised and rejected by men. And ultimately, Christ's descent reaches its low point at the cross, where he not only endured throughout his life our contempt, our mistreatment, but on the cross bearing our sin, he bore the Father's displeasure and wrath at our sin in his flesh on the tree. So what Paul is, is doing here, I think, is two powerful things. First, having just called us to humility in verse 2. Having just called us to gentleness and patience and to bear with one another in love, what does he do? He reminds us that Christ is only able to ascend and give these gifts because he first descended in humility and in gentleness and in patience, preferring us, bearing with us, putting what we needed ahead of his own pleasure and pain. Now, yes, yes, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, but he endured that shame. Precisely because he is modeling the very thing Paul's called us to do. So even reinforcing what we saw last week about pursuing peace. The cross comes before the crown. Humility comes before honor. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, who's ascended above all, ruling all, the name above every name first descended. And, and Paul draws our attention to that. I think in part because we're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to serve as well. We're going to have to humble ourselves. We are going to have to prefer each other as the body builds itself up in love. So Paul's um, first and second point. Christ's ascension pre is presupposed his descent. Christ's ascension presupposed his descent. Christ descended in his incarnation and death. 
from his incarnation and death. Paul's already looked to that briefly in chapter 2, the cross. Um, chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two, making peace. So Christ's gifts of grace are only possible because of his incarnation, and because of the cross, because of his descent. He can only ascend because he is first descended. And so the other thing Paul's doing here is linking, again, every gift of grace that you and I have ever received and will ever receive flows directly from and out of the cross of Christ. It's the only thing Paul says he'll boast in. Any good thing you and I have ever received is a grace bought at Calvary, purchased by the death of the Son of God. Now Paul has already told us that that death purchased our redemption. He, he forgave our sins. He covered them. We were cleansed. And we were chosen. And we were called. And we were adopted. And we were given the Spirit as a seal of an inheritance. And we were made alive. And we were raised. And we were seated. And we're being built together. And all of this coming out of the cross. Well, here's one more grace flowing from the cross. We've been gifted with a custom-fit, tailored gift. And that grace was only made possible because of the cross as well. So even as we try to build the church, even as we try to grow and walk in a worthy manner, it's, it's all cross-centered. The cross is at the center of it all because all these good things, all these graces, all they flow from it. So even as Christ triumphs and in his triumph gives gifts to men, that's only possible because he first died as a man on the cross and rose again. Point C, Christ is exalted because he descended. Now, I've already started talking about that, haven't I? The ascent in Paul's thinking is only made possible because of the descent. In, in one sense, the Lord Jesus Christ was fully deserving of glory and honor and praise, obedience, and loyalty, and love before he ever became a man. Just by virtue of his being, his nature, his identity as the Son of God, he deserved all those things. The angels beholding him covered their eyes and covered their feet and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But Paul's point here is, then the very real sense for us, for the redeemed, we praise him, we glorify him, we bask in these graces precisely because of his suffering and descent. Christ is exalted precisely because he was humbled. Okay? He was exalted precisely because he was humbled. His ascent, his victory, his giving of gifts in his enthronement, is coming out of his work on the cross, his, his life and ministry on earth. That, that's Paul's point. He who descended is the one who also ascended. 
It's the same one. The same one who rose in victory is the same one who died in ignominy. The same one who has triumphed over all is the one who is condemned by his own people, by the Roman government. The same, same person. Because we, we focus on glory and honor. And even for our God whom we serve, the cross came before the crown. Humility came before honor. So we need to get that straight in our own heads as we follow after him. As we walk in a worthy manner. We can be tempted to think because of the glory set before us, we're kids of the king. We're, we're sons and daughters of royalty. Yeah, that's true. The biblical emphasis, Paul's far more common self-designation is slave of Christ. Least of the saints. Because the cross comes before the crown. Because humility comes before glory. Because Christ's descent preceded his ascent. Well, we sing that, don't we? Down at your feet, O oh Lord, is the most high place. There is no higher calling, no greater honor than to bow before your throne. Right? So, let's just finish our time out here then. Christ is exalted above all things that he might rule all things. Christ is exalted above all things, that he might rule all things. And here what I'm getting at is, is that that phrase used at the end of verse 10, that he has ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. What does it mean by fill? This is not pantheism. This is not the notion of, of Christ being in every rock and every tree and in every blade of grass. No, the filling of all things is the ruling, the coordinating, the directing of all things, the rule of all things. This is not a New Testament concept only. Listen to um, Jeremiah. Let me turn there. Chapter 23, um, where a similar phrase is used of God speaking in the context of rule. Jeremiah 23:24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, not a God away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see? declares the Lord. Do I not fill the earth, declares the Lord. What's the idea here? He's ruling. He's sovereign. He's aware of his domain. There's no subject in his domain that escapes his notice, his oversight, and his rule. And the same notion of filling all things is used in Ephesians in the end of this section. Because what is the purpose of the gifts? If you were paying attention a few minutes ago when I covered this the purpose of the gifts look at verse 12 of ephesians chapter 4 to equip the saints for the work of the ministry which is what the building up of the body of christ okay how built up until we attain to the unity of the faith the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ do you get it? The measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. He wants to fill all things. The body is built up until 
It attains the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer may be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. The body grows up and fills up the appropriate space for the head. But what's the metaphor? The head directs the body. The head rules the body. So Christ filling all things is Christ ruling over all things, being sovereign in all places and at all times, so that every molecule and atom and every star and every blade of grass and every snowflake and every mote of dust on a different distant moon is ruled by the sovereign Christ who is above all and over all. That's the idea. So Christ has triumphantly been victorious over sin, death, the grave. He has risen in triumph just as God ascended Mount Sinai and the ark to dwell there. And in ascending, he received gifts. He was given these gifts that he then distributes freely among his people. And now he is exalted that he might rule over all and the logic is this christ was exalted precisely so he might rule over all and the first people he ought to be ruling over is his body the church and he's given us these gifts that the body might function properly so understand god's purpose is a body of redeemed chosen adopted forgiven sons and daughters who are made one in Christ, who are unified in Christ, who adopt the mindset of their Lord and Master of humility, gentleness, patience, who prefer each other, look after each other's interests, just as the Lord Jesus did in his earthly life, who understand that suffering comes before glory, who are willing and zealous and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, who are eager to more and more become the Lord's body responding as it ought to respond. When you and I have difficulty controlling our limbs, we go to physical therapy because the body is supposed to do what the mind and the head tells it to do. And so if you've had an injury or you've had some sickness that makes it difficult for you to walk or difficult for you to move, we recognize something is wrong. My body's not doing what I want it to do. Well, something similar is going on here. Christ has given these gifts. He's, we'll see you next week. He's given these gifted men to coordinate so that every joint, every muscle, every bone would work in harmony and the body would build itself up in love. Christ has been raised over all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. But his body should be doing this now. When he comes again, every knee, every tongue. But now... He rules primarily over his people, over his church, as we invite others in. So as we bring our message to a close, I'll just remind you, the victorious, raised, exalted Christ, who is over all, has given you and me tailored, custom-fit gift of grace. Not because of our dessert, 
not because we asked for it, but for his glory and our good, that we might engage together in a group project of maturing, strengthening, building up the body of Christ, his church. The the elders, the pastors, the teachers, they're not doing the work. They're doing the equipping, the training, but we can all do the work. And that's important because Christ has been exalted above all and ultimately will rule all. But now, while he delays, while his mercy rules and governs and his wrath is held at bay, while other sinners are invited to come join the table, join the body, while other lost sheep are being brought in, he ought to, he desires to rule and coordinate and direct his body. And so we look at all the grace that's been given and we're called to walk in a fitting and worthy way. We've been made part of this body. We've been gifted individually, chosen in eternity past. God was thinking of you in eternity past and he chose you and he chose me and he redeemed and he called us and he made us alive. He raised you with Christ. He gave you every spiritual blessing. Then he gave you and he gave me a unique individual gift of grace for the work at hand. And Paul's pleading, exhorting us to walk in a worthy way of that call, to not take that lightly. God has not left you on earth primarily to pursue your career, primarily to pursue your interests. He's left you on earth primarily to build his church. You build his church through evangelism, bringing people in, and you build his church through the work of ministry of building up the body of Christ more and more directed by imaging, filling up the the fullness of Christ. That's, That's why we're here. That's why he tarries. And so my prayer is that we would take that seriously. Now again, in this time of distancing, that will be difficult. We will have to think outside of the box. But this is the great project for us on planet Earth. That Christ's body might be built up, both enlarged as others come in, as other blood-bought sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters come in, and sanctified and stabilized and matured through every joint and sinew doing its part. I'm just going to close by reading out that section of Ephesians chapter 4. It's such a glorious picture. And my prayer is that you would get a vision for this and a passion for this and an excitement for this. This is what you've been called to and no one can stand in for you. No one can do your part. Each joint and sinew and muscle is essential and necessary. Paul's emphatic on that point. We'll see that in two weeks. Let me just read. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen and amen. God bless you.